0: hey dog notes listeners and supporters welcome back it's me jake i have another podcast interview for you and i hope you're as excited about it as i am today i interviewed dr molly rutherford she's a primary care physician in kentucky and she's doing things a little bit unorthodox which i like because i think of myself as a little bit unorthodox she's um out-of-the-box and her thinking her treatment approaches and even her practice and we go over all that we also cover social media exposure with children and what you can do to protect your kids and we explore some creative ways to keep yourself healthy and also how to recover from addiction properly, especially opioid addiction. So if you have somebody suffering with that or struggling with it, uh, this might be a good one for you to listen to. If you're a provider of any kind in the healthcare community, I think this is also going to be useful and eye-opening, especially if you're sick of dealing with the insurance system and the fee-for-service model that we have. I know I am, and I am encouraged, uh, as, as I usually am after these podcasts. I always enjoy learning from people, and that's a big reason why I do them. I'm always excited to talk to other people. I'm not super excited about producing the podcast, which thankfully I don't have to for this one. Safiso Rapinga, Naga Note's founder, all the way around the world in Cambodia, he does the production, so I don't have to. All I get to do is record and uh, talk to people and send it off to him via Slack. So, uh, yeah, if you're interested, in sharing this around after you're done listening to it, please do so. That's how we get exposure and that's how we help heal people. You know, the more people that digest this content and apply it to their everyday lives, the happier and healthier we'll be as a community and a culture. So um, please don't be shy when you uh, when you talk about it. Give us a rating and review. And uh, always feel free to email in too. info at zephyrwellness.org or info at nogginnotes.com are great ways to drop us. Uh, topics that you want us to cover, or even suggest guests, we can we can do that too, we can look into that. So without uh, further delay, I want to um, introduce Molly and have our conversation. Sorry, I should say without too much further delay, there is a little bit of a delay. <laughs> I forgot to mention free and anonymous mental health screenings. If you're new to the show and you're unsure of what this is about, um, I work in mental health and uh, one of the endeavors that I have is... I work for, or I don't work for, I volunteer for a nonprofit called Walk the Talk America that's bridging the gap between firearms ownership and mental health care. And what we're trying to do is get gun owners access to counseling without fear of rights restriction. One great way to check in on yourself to see if you even need mental health care is to take a free and anonymous mental health screening through the website, WTTA, that's Walk the Talk America, WTTA.org slash love. You can go there and Take a free and anonymous mental health screening. You don't even have to be a gun owner. It's just great. It's, uh, it's some insight. There's about 14 of them, I think, and they're, uh, a couple of them are in Spanish. They're powered by Mental Health America, which is a very large organization that uh, you know provides and powers these screenings for us, so you know they're done with fidelity. So WTTA.org slash love to take a free and anonymous mental health screening. You can also get more content from the Zephyr Wellness website. That's the company that I own and operate here in Reno, Nevada and Greater Northern Nevada, as we call it, it's uh, zephyrwellness.org for that, and you can check out some of our writings and our YouTube content, and maybe apply some of that in your daily life too. For sure, you should go look at the Emotional Functioning series that I have on the YouTube channel or on the website. Just click through the Media and Articles tab, and uh, under the Education uh, link, you can just type in Emotional Functioning, and it'll pop right up, so... Now, without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Molly Rutherford. Welcome back, listening audience. Thanks again for joining us. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Molly Rutherford from Louisville, Kentucky. Hello, how are you?
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: I'm glad you're here. Um, We met on Twitter, and uh, it sounds a little odd, but I found a way to make Twitter edifying. It took me a while, but um, I'm, I'm able to do that, and and through it, I get to meet cool people like you, and I was privileged to hear your interview on a different podcast, so uh, we'll get into that in a little bit, but why don't you introduce yourself and tell everybody what you do and who you are and all that stuff.
1: Sure. Um, so, I am a primary care doctor. My, my residency was in family medicine, and originally, I'm from Virginia. I grew up in Loudoun County, Virginia and, um, Leesburg. And, um, my story is kind of, kind of long. I didn't go to, uh, medical school straight out of college. I, I worked for a while. I actually worked at the NIAID right down the hall from Dr. Tony Fauci. So I have that in my background, um, for what it's worth. And, um, and then, uh, ended up going to Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia, um, where, I always knew i wanted to be family medicine i just um was driven to take care of people and families and communities it really uh was exactly what i wanted to do and then um while i was in medical school i met my husband and he um was he he ended up joining the police force in norfolk virginia Um, so when we were looking after residency, when we were looking for places to move, I kind of wanted to do rural medicine and he wanted to be, he, he, at the time he did, wasn't sure if he was going to do law enforcement, but he knew that if he, he was either going to do law enforcement or fire, firefighter, be a firefighter. So he wanted to be, he wanted to do that in the city. He didn't want to do that in like a rural area. So we, we ended up out here in, we live in Oldham County, which is just Northeast of Jefferson detective in Louisville, Kentucky. And then when we came out here, I was rural. I ended up having another child. So we, I moved to uh, a practice in my hometown, which is LaGrange. And, um, around that time was when like all of the affordable care act stuff was starting and the electronic medical record was, um, becoming a requirement. And I just, and, and I was practicing addiction medicine at that time. I was, um, I think it was 2008. I started treating addiction, mainly opioid dependence because we had a really huge problem here in Kentucky. So I, I was trained to prescribe buprenorphine for people who were addicted to opioids, pain pills, mostly at that time. And then, um, eventually they kind of transitioned over to heroin, but, um, so that was very rewarding work. And then it was also non-covered work. So it was it was uh, direct pay. It was always direct pay because uh, insurance companies, Medicaid, Medicare, nobody covered uh, substance abuse treatment, at least in Kentucky at that time. They were supposed to, but they didn't. So um, I, I really enjoyed that because I was able to spend as much time as I needed with a patient. And then my focus was on the patient. It wasn't on, you know, billing codes or... Um, checking all the boxes that the government wanted me to check in order to get the proper amount of money for my employer. Um, And so just a lot of things converged. And I decided, you know, I'm, I'm either not going to be a doctor anymore, or I'm going to find a way to get out of this system so that I can truly take care of my patients. And so that's when I started my, practice in 2015 in Crestwood, Kentucky, which is also in Oldham County. And um, so I do primary care and I do addiction treatment, but it's all direct pay. And I am board certified still in family medicine and addiction medicine. So um, I do mostly opioid dependence, but I also treat people with other addictions and then um, started doing some keto coaching. It's uh, um, it's kind of a crazy story. I think, you know. I believe that it was all God's plan, but um, here I am. So that's the quick version.
0: And that concludes our podcast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. I want to cover uh, a few parts of that. Uh, first, I think I want to talk about the addiction stuff because we hear a lot about it in broader media and culture and society. We got an opioid crisis. And I have one of my friends and I actually – he was one of my interns for his clinical professional uh, license. uh, But he's become a mentor of mine, because he spent a lot of time in that field. And he says that following every opioid epidemic, we have a basically a stimulant epidemic following it. And he thinks it's gonna be amphetamines that follow. I don't. Is that your impression? Is that your experience? One I mean, I think them.
1: I think people abuse stimulants. I think people abuse a lot of substances. They they abuse medication. You know, some of them are medications. Some of them are street drugs. I think um, that you know the the opioid crisis was just so noticeable because of the number of people that died. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we we may or may not see an increase in the in the use of stimulants and the use of meth. Um, but those drugs are not as likely to kill people if, but of course, if people are using drugs off the street, even if it's a, even if a dealer is giving them something that they say is Xanax, or they give them something they say is Adderall, it can be laced with fentanyl and that can be very deadly. So, um, so I, I look at it as more like we have, uh, we have, we've always had this, uh, Epidemic or human nature of people looking for relief for whatever they're going through, and so medicating with um, nicotine or alcohol or, you know, opioids, um, stimulants, and I think the the opioids. Um, I you know, there are people who argue with me and say that it didn't have anything to do with prescribing. And I don't believe that. I believe that the epidemic started with over prescribing. I don't think it was purposeful. I don't think doctors really, I mean, I think we were, we were um, indoctrinated or or brainwashed in a way during medical school to think that, um, that we were under prescribing. So when I went through medical school in 1999 to 2003, there were, that was right during the push to doctors and students don't be an opioid you know, uh, we're under treating pain. There are so many people suffering with pain and you know we need to treat them compassionately. and then and then there were consequences if you didn't treat somebody with opioids. There were doctors in Kentucky who were sued. For not prescribing opioids, or they would, or they would risk getting fired from their job or not getting their performance bonuses because their hospital administ- because they would get so many negative reviews because they were too um, stingy with opioids. So there were many factors involved in that whole situation. But um, I definitely see I definitely see people going for stimulants more. I, I see uh, more diagnoses of ADHD. I think you know, even in my practice, you know, I'm getting people coming in. And they do they do have a positive screen for ADHD. I don't know what that's about. I think some of it is our culture, just because we're constantly, you know, stimulated and overstimulated. I don't I don't think that as many people who have that who carry that diagnosis truly have that diagnosis if that
0: makes sense yeah no it does and and we're seeing a lot in the so we don't do prescribing at zephyr we we do outpatient talk therapy um i I would love to have a prescriber on board so that we can communicate well in the hallways about this kind of stuff but they're hard to find especially in nevada where we're provider deficient across the board but we we are seeing that and my theory is very much aligned with yours which is that we're we're so oversaturated with stimulus that we can't pull ourselves away from having to either be online all the time and in contact with everybody or be busy with this like cultural imperative that we always have to like immerse ourselves in stuff to do. And so as a result, we don't know how to calm down, right? We don't know how to just be still, turn off stimulus and you know, touch grass, so to speak, and connect with our neighbors. And I think that that drives a wedge in things like intimacy and vulnerability and just being Silent and quiet, and and also patient. So I think we've lost a lot of distress tolerance, which is why I center a lot on emotional functioning. If you know how you your emotions function, you can navigate them well. You don't have to reach for external uh, intrusions to you know combat that or or navigate it. Um, how do you go about having conversations with people when you see this and it's and you see the maybe the root cause is not the symptom presentation and present this? alternative idea to them that runs counter to what the maybe what the cultural uh, narrative is
1: well thankfully I, I have the I can do that because I have the time I feel bad for my colleagues who work in the system because they they, they really have anywhere from I don't know five to seven minutes with a patient so how are you going to talk to a patient about lifestyle It's a, it's a lot easier to just pull out your prescription pad and write something right or refer to somebody else. Um, so I am blessed in that I can I can have that conversation and I can point people to uh, other resources um, to help with whatever mental health issue that they're having. Because basically, almost everyone that I see has some mental health struggle, not necessarily a ICD-10 diagnosis, but um, something that they're dealing with whether it be a just um a situational thing like a loss of a loved one or a relationship problem and it's and it got it, it got much worse not surprising um the past three years because because w- we were only communicating online and people were isolated and you know people were drinking more just uh fearful because of everything that was coming out on the news. So I just, I just sit and have a conversation. I try to, I do as much listening as I can. Um, I do refer people to therapy a lot. Um, it's challenging for, for people to find the time because everybody's busy. Um, but I definitely try to encourage people to fit that in. Um, and, and then other Kinds of like exercise is really important for mental health. You know, I try to convince people to find something that they enjoy doing that um, is exercise. And then meditation is important. Sleep is so important. So I've been trying to convince more people, you know, have a a routine bedtime, put your phone away a couple hours before you go to bed, put your phone on, um, do not disturb when you go to bed. Um, So, you know, it's behavior changes is, is hard, but, um, you know, most people want to change, but it is definitely challenging.
0: Yeah. The listening audience probably can't see me nodding along vigorously with everything you're saying. There's a lot of directions I want to go here and we're sort of brushing up against the the model of your practice. But before we get into that, I want to uh, backtrack a little bit into this, um, thing you, you alluded to, which is like the the pain is the fifth vital sign, uh, with regard to prescribing. I think the, what you explained there in the beginning about the pendulum swing from not touching opioids to opioids being okay. And we can, I mean, we don't have to dive into the whole pharmaceutical industry, probably compelling this through the schools and, and through the associations, but the fact is it happened. And now I think the pendulum has swung too far back. Now we've got legislation that goes the opposite direction that compels doctors to be overly cautious with their prescribing. And I'm seeing, some people in my own life as well as on social media I'm connected with saying we can't just abandon opioids as a prescription because we're afraid of them. So it's like now we're back in the nineties again. What's the resolution here? How do we, how do we navigate this? You know, pain is the fifth vital sign without, uh, I guess spastically jumping at it and, you know, overreacting to it. What, What do we do? I mean, without a holistic, deep conversation about the origins of it.
1: Uh, you know, it's gonna it's it's gonna be challenging because of the system. Like anybody that's any doctor that's working within the system right now has no authority, no power. They, you know, they just they just don't. So physicians like myself that are outside the system, we, we're able to have nuance. There's no nuance in the system. It's checking boxes, it's doing what your administrators want you to do, it's worrying about whether or not you're gonna get sued. Um, so, and, and the doctors, they don't even have time to do their own research, you know? So they're just taking what the CDC CDC says, what the FDA says, what the, what the health department says, they're just taking that as that's the truth. Cause they don't have time to go and look and figure out if it's the truth. So, um, you know, in my, in my, in my practice, what I do is I, I do have some, chronic pain patients who have been on opioids for a very long time. And admittedly, when I started the practice and I was doing mostly addiction, I really didn't want those patients because I didn't want it to look like there was some conflict of interest. Like I was I was going to treat people for pain with opioids, get them hooked, and then switch them over to Suboxone. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't mm-hmm. have a good look. But I started to see what you're describing, which is abandonment you know, um, patients who would, who had a pain medicine doctor, for example, who was filling their Percocet, maybe they were taking four Percocet a day. They go in for one visit and they had tried, you know, some CBD or they had tried a gummy, they test positive for THC. And all of a sudden they're kicked out of the practice, you know, and they're, and they're left to withdraw. I, I mean, I've seen that more than once and I'm not talking, these are like people in their 60s who have been on these medicines for years, just completely abandoned by the system. And um, so I do, I do help people who I feel legitimately need opioids for their chronic pain, and they've been on them for a while, and the system has sometimes somehow, you know, has abandoned them in some way. Um, And then I have, you know, then I have some patients who, after a while, it's clear that, you know, maybe these, maybe these medicines aren't, aren't helping you in the way that you think, let's try to taper you off of them. I've had people taper off of opioids successfully without even transitioning over to Suboxone. And then I've had some patients who transition over to uh, buprenorphine, sorry for saying the brand name earlier, but over to buprenorphine products, and they actually get really good pain control with that. So, um, you know we have some really stupid laws in kentucky i mean if you want to go into like that situation it's just dumb like we can't use we're not permitted to use generic buprenorphine naloxone for pain period so it's basically yeah if we want to treat pain for if we want to use buprenorphine to treat pain we have to use the brand name drugs which is either uh, a patch and how is that? I, I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know if that's coming from some kind of conflict, conflict of interest from the phar- pharmaceutical company or, or what that is. But that, that is in Kentucky statute. So we can't do it. And then the other thing we're not permitted to do is we're not permitted to use um, monoproduct buprenorphine tablets, which are really inexpensive. We're not permitted to use those um, to treat opioid dependence unless we unless we witness some sort of allergy to the naloxone part, which is ridiculous, too. I mean, I could go into it, but it's kind of complicated. Um, so that that's how I handle it. But your listeners, especially doctors who are in the system, they're going to listen to this and say, well, I, you know, I, can't, I don't have time for all that, you know. To have nuance, so it's just, uh, and and you're right. All the regulations at the state level, at the federal level, they require you know you check all these boxes. You have to do this many urine drug screens and that many urine drug screens, and you know um, check the PDMP however many times a year. And what's that? Just, what's that acronym? It's a mess. Oh, the PDMP. It's the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. So each state has one and it basically like it made sense at the beginning of the epidemic because at the beginning of the opioid crisis, everybody was using pills. And so everybody was doctor shop, what we call doctor shopping. They were going to various doctors, various dentists and getting their prescriptions to meet their, um, their habit or their addiction. Mm-hmm. But once once the the feds and all of the states cracked down on prescribing, and everyone was just going to the street to get heroin anyway, the prescription drug monitoring program is really not valuable anymore. To be honest, I it it's I never find it to be helpful.
0: It sounds like that's an attempt at um, harm reduction. It's like, well, if you're if they're going to do it anyway, let's at least keep it under some sort of regulated hood, so to speak. And yeah. I'm I'm not a Don't misread me. I mean, like, I'm a fan of harm reduction, if it's leading to a conclusion. I'm not a fan of harm reduction in perpetuity, because all you're doing is maintaining the same problem that this person apparently is struggling with in the first place. So I don't get that. I what I'm wondering is how you work around it because it sounds like these laws would be binding to any licensed practitioner, right? So just escaping the system wouldn't necessarily give you the autonomy to do what you need to do ethically for the patient if you're patient centered how do you how do you work with that?
1: It just gives you more time to deal with those hoops um, yeah, it's that's the main thing. I mean, but I've gotten to the point where. Also my addiction specialty protects me somewhat. I have, I'm, a, I'm able to do more because I have the board certification in addiction medicine, like okay. that's in the statute in Kentucky. So it's somewhat protective. And um, you know, one good thing that they, they did drop the X number requirement to prescribe buprenorphine recently. So I, I think that's a good thing. It's, it's going to be easier for um, doctors do in any field to be able to start somebody on buprenorphine because, because really what the way that we save lives with buprenorphine is we catch that person when they come in and they are ready to get well and they are ready to accept help, but they are in withdrawal. They are in withdrawal. So if you, if say I'm an ER doctor and somebody comes in in withdrawal and they really do want help, and so what happens in most ERs is they just give them, like, my card. But by the time they get around to reaching out to me, they've, they've, they're they've they back in active addiction. Mm-hmm. So they really need to be, um, they need to be induct, they need to go through induction in the emergency department, ideally. If they are, you know, if they're saying, I want help, then, you know, ideally, an ER doctor in Louisville, for example, would, would do the induction try to figure out what dose of bupren- buprenorphine is going to help with the withdrawal symptoms and then make sure that patient has an appointment with me the next day or a couple days later. And, and as you can imagine, that's a challenge, that's a challenge in our system as well. Sure. Um,
0: You're short just, of time in the ER just as you are yeah. at the outpatient office. Yeah.
1: And then trying to get them in quickly for follow-up is a problem. So um, those are all, if, if we could figure out a way to do that, we could save a lot more lives. Um,
0: do, do you think there's... Then, a, oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: And then, you know, I have people who are maintained on those medicines for a long time. So we need to get past that whole stigma of, you know oh, well, you're just replacing one addiction with another, you know, taking buprenorphine for, for opioid dependence is not addiction. You know, yes, that is the body physically dependent on that medicine. Absolutely. But addiction is um, continuing the same behaviors despite negative consequences. Once a person gets on a buprenorphine dose and is stable, They're not, they're not stealing, they're not lying, they're going to work, you know, so that's no longer addiction.
0: Yeah, we, uh, we work pretty closely with a a medicated, uh, a uh, medical assisted therapy or medication assisted therapy agency here in town. And, and they have a similar mindset, which I appreciate, but it sounds like what you're referencing here is basically a good treatment plan. A good treatment plan targets the problem, suggests some interventions, and the goal is time limited, you know, it's somewhat quantifiable. It's not just giving them stuff in perpetuity. So you're replacing one substance with another, right? And um, i I, two things I'm curious about there. One is how long on average are you seeing people uh, be on the, 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 I guess we'll call it the replacement drug, the buprenorphine or the, um, or the naloxone. Now Suboxone is the brand name, right?
1: But yeah, Suboxone is buprenorphine slash naloxone, so it oh. has both of those um, medications in it. And then Subutex is the brand name for the monoproduct, which is just buprenorphine.
0: Gotcha, okay. So yeah. I, I guess the, the the first question is how, about how long can someone who wants to get off and be free uh, of substances completely, what are we looking at there? And then the second question it's sort of related is, what of the what percentage of the pie chart is people who have psychosomatic ailments related to the original like if you if you're in a, an automobile collision and your back is hurt and you go through your physical therapy but you can't kick the medication and in your head you you're still thinking you're in pain versus somebody who's got structural deficiencies that actually produce real pain cuz i don't i don't know how to disaggregate those i guess
1: mm-hmm. Oh, th- yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I'll, I'll refer you to, <laughs> I'll refer you and your listeners to this report. I was part of a, I was part of an HHS um, committee in 2000, I think it was 2018, 2019. And um, it was called the Best Practices for Pain Management. Um, and and we brought together many experts and we identified gaps in pain management. And one of the things that we brought up or that we learned as a gap is pain psychology, because Mm -hmm. it is all connected. It's all neurology, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So a person's um, mental health issues are, if, if you're struggling with your mental health and then you also have a, an, an accident that causes pain, you are more likely to your healing of your pain is likely to be delayed if your mental health issues are not addressed. So they're connected, um, and how to deal with it is 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 to you know I think my practice is ideal for that because I do treat you know I do primary care I treat I treat many mental health issues but still you know having a good pain psychologist would be ideal it's it's but it's very it's very hard to find pain psychologists it's a it's a very small field but they're great if you can you know if you can get people into them as far as how long should we leave people on buprenorphine i haven't reviewed the data recently but the last time i did uh it basically said 18 to 24 months on buprenorphine um you're less likely to relapse in 5 years if like if somebody comes in and they try to taper off of it too quickly then the data suggests that they are not they're less they're probably going to relapse they're more likely to relapse so um, we have some newer formulations of buprenorphine, which is great. We have a an injectable; it's once a month, and then there what there, there's a uh, um, an implant that lasts six months. I've heard I haven't used much of it just be- for, because of insurance concerns, but I've heard that the injectable buprenorphine um, has a much smoother taper. So it's easier for people if they can start with the injectable, It's they're they're going to have probably better success tapering off the buprenorphine and not having to rely on that anymore. Um, but I individualize it because I have some patients, I have some patients who, you know, just started using pills and they were addicted to pills after a three or four months. And then, you know, they never went to heroin. They never like completely wrecked their lives. They didn't lose their kids. They didn't go to jail. Those types of patients, you know, they, they have a good support system. They live in, live in, you know, a nice area that they're more likely to be able to get off of the medicine and be okay. um, And, and at least be able to access the resources that they need and they have a good social structure as well, or, 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 a great family life, friends, etc., that can help them. Um, then I have patients who, you know, went to prison. You know, they're felons. They lost their kids. They lost everything. Those individuals are more anxious about stopping their medicine because their lives literally went from being horrible, you know, just total chaos to normal. You know, they have a job, they're able to see their kids now, they have good relationships, they go to church, they have friendships, and so they remember when their lives changed and it was when they started that medicine. So, you know, I don't push them to stop the medicine, but I do I I do have incentives built in, like in my pricing structure, so that if they're if they're able to get down to the lowest effective dose. It's gonna be less expensive for them to come here. so and there are problems with that too, of course. nothing's perfect but um but that's that's kind of where I am. you know, I have people who are just they they are absolutely terrified to get off the medicine because that's how bad their lives were.
0: yeah, it makes sense too when you talk about just the idea of somebody's homeostasis being chaos not necessarily wanting to embrace the the change uh rapidly but what you're saying is it's very hope inspiring because it's it says that this uh, this can be time limited right and there is a there is an exit strategy which is really cool and i think if if we get more messaging out of this opportunity right and and let people know that it's not it's not forever it's not a death sentence and you can recover what we're really saying is maybe you didn't have resiliency taught to you when you were a kid maybe you didn't have the structure in place to rely on friends family community resources that's okay you can you can still imagine a life where that exists and you can be a part of it and it creates a i guess a i don't want to say a dream world because it's not out of reach but it's it's a dream type where you say you can allow yourself to believe that there's hope out there. And it's not just white knuckling it through life, bouncing from one provider to the next. Uh, and that, that just becomes your new homeostasis, right? There's, there's not a different dependency that we create. So that's, that's pretty right. cool to hear. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead.
1: And I, I have a problem with people like, uh, I'm a Christian. So I, um, I have, I have communicated with people in the church. I've communicated, communicated with Christian recovery organizations about buprenorphine and tried to educate on that. And there's still a huge, um, I don't know, there's just a roadblock because the 12 step programs just don't see buprenorphine treatment as recovery. They just don't. Um, and that's a problem. Um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, it, it just, it kills people, quite frankly. Um, my, my cousin died from, um, fentanyl overdose in December of 2020. And, um, he'd been in recovery for a long time and he was not taking, he was not taking buprenorphine. Um, and he, he didn't want to, because he didn't like the stigma around it. And he also didn't think he needed it, you know? So, so when there's, and, you know, this is a person who, I mean, family dysfunction aside, we all have that. He was, he was an attorney, you know, he, he was functioning well enough at some point to get through law school. Um, And he was uh, not married, but he was living with his girlfriend and had, they had just had a baby like in October of 2020. And um, I guess she had a C-section and she got some Percocet and that, that started his, his relapse. So, you know, um i understand i understand both lines of thinking but i i just think you know a, attaching stigma to buprenorphine or even methadone for that matter there are, i used to work in the methadone clinic i'm not a huge fan of methadone i would much rather treat people with buprenorphine for a number of reasons but but there are people who are not going to be successful with buprenorphine and they have to have methadone and that's the only way they're going to get their lives back so If we um, if we keep stigmatizing those those treatments that are really helpful for people, then that's going to lead to people dying.
0: And you're saying we we in the we in the treating, helping, healing profession are the ones who are stigmatizing, right? Or is it is it society? I mean, I think
1: everybody does. I think uh, I think everybody does. I I, most people in our in our realm in the addiction field don't because you know we've
0: you see the results, yeah, sure.
1: And we've, and we've seen the results, but yeah, I think there are other doctors who maybe don't treat addiction who look at it that way. Um, And then, like I said, the religious community, the, the 12 step community, they look at those medications with, you know, uh, I don't know. They just, they, they don't approve of them. And so when, when I have a patient who is a Christian, for example, and um, is stable on buprenorphine and wants to do the 12-step program. He and that person has to go and basically lie, uh, you know, uh, to their sponsor or lie to their meeting. That's not really healing. That's that's not because lying is part of an active addiction, right? So that's not that's not helpful, and it's hypocritical because they're all standing outside smoking cigarettes yeah. and drinking coffee. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's always killed me. It's like, you, you had, for, the, for the uninitiated, the 12-step programs are chiefly rooted in uh, abstinence. It's, it's, a, it's a very binary way of approaching things. It's like you're either addicted or you're totally clean. And it's not like that at all. We can have lots of bridges to sobriety, bridges to healing, bridges to wholeness. But you're right. Like When you're being inauthentic in your process, that's, that's not a great way to go about it. I'm glad you uh, referenced. This This is a good segue. It's like get out of my head, Molly. Um, When you (laughs) when you reference being a Christian, I I also follow Jesus and I wear that on my sleeve. I don't browbeat people about it uh, because I think finding your own path to God is is up to the individual. I certainly have my you know preferences, but I'm I'm curious. I had a guy on the show. Gosh, it's probably been four or five years ago now. uh, Named Michael McGee. He's from uh, California. And he has this uh, really cool way of saying, you know, we, we treat addiction through spirituality. We treat addiction through faith and love. And I'm wondering how much of a component that is to your practice. I I will tee this up by saying that I openly say to people, especially those struggling with anxiety, I say, look, there's, there's no room for anxiety in the place of a person who has faith um, in their life, right? If you have faith, you don't really have anxiety because you have belief that things will be fine. Um, and so I actually openly actively invite them and even in some cases direct them to go find some way to anchor themselves in something bigger than they are. And I don't know how you approach that, but I'm curious to hear it.
1: The same basic but you know, I live in Kentucky, so most people here are already have a strong faith background. Um and, and I I'm not shy about asking people that question. And, um, you know, I've even invited, you know, given people a card for Easter for my church, invited them to my church. Um, I've prayed with patients before or said, I will pray for you. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. Um, that has not always been the case. I mean, I would say when during training and when I was, um, you know, maybe not walking with Jesus as much as I am now. Um, you know, I was in the. I was embarrassed to do that, or I didn't think it was appropriate. But now, you know, I it's my business. I own it. So if the patient is offended and they quit, they, <laughs> that's. That's okay. That's Maybe funny. I planted a seed. You I'm, know? I'm
0: laughing because I can envi- envision some of my professors heads popping when I'm nodding with you. It's like, yeah, you should encourage people to do things that are healthy. And among them is spirituality. Like, I don't even care what it is, as long as it's a, you know, it's a good, healthy one that helps you. Um, but well, like, oh, there's science it
1: behind it. I mean, there there's actual science behind it, you know, that um, prayer helps and having, having a, a faith is, it, you know, people live longer. They, they they're healthier. There's
0: absolutely, absolutely. I'm glad to hear you do that. Let's talk a little bit about your model here. Uh, how did you come about this, but then also describe it? Cause you have, um, a pricing structure, uh, for your, your practice. Um, you do families. Um, like you said, you, you give discounts and by the way, it's bluegrassfamilywellness.com. If anybody wants to go check out what Molly does, but tell us a little bit about the story and then how it, how it works, how it because I know it free. I'm thinking of my own practice here. I'm like, I would love to be free of the fee for service claim submission s- system. We just got denied a claim from Anthem the other day because uh, they they wrote back and said adults cannot have ADHD. It's like, what? Are you <laughs> okay? Ser- you serious? Right. Yeah. So it that's just the magically game.
1: Disappears when yeah. you become an adult. Yep. Yeah. Uh, no, I I um I started. Uh, looking into it in 2014. And interesting, um, I, I was getting emails from the American Academy of Family Physicians, believe it or not, there, there's a pretty strong contingent within the AAFP, even though they have other problems that I won't go into, um, that do direct primary care. And so I um, I was first introduced to the model uh, by watching a video of Dr. Josh Umber. So he is... Um, located in wichita kansas and he's a family medicine physician who immediately out of residency started atlas it's called atlas md and he uh, started his practice straight out of residency so he never he never participated in the um, insurance billing third-party billing And Lucky duck. Um, i know i know he's very smart and so i saw him uh speak and I ended up just calling him and and talking to him about how he set it up. And um, he has a website, uh, atlas.md, and he has a whole curriculum that's free for people who want to start this type of, it's specifically direct primary care, but there are specialists who do direct care as well. Um, it's it's growing in number. Um so what I did was I modeled my practice after his, and then I use his electronic medical record. So it's, it's an elect, it's an electronic medical record, meaning it's on the computer, but there's no, it's not like what you're used to with Epic or, you know, some of the other big brands of electronic medical record. There's no box checking. I just write my notes and then it also handles the practice management side. So the pricing is based on age. In hindsight, I probably would have just had two prices, one for kids, one for adults. I think that would have been simpler. But I went with his model, and we had, and, and so the pricing increases with age because you know, more risk. people have more health problems, sure. yeah, and they need to be seen more often. And so that price point, it comes at it, it, – People are billed monthly, or um, they'll get a ten percent discount if, if they want to pay ahead for an entire year. Uh, we do offer like a flat fee for a family, so this really benefits people who have like eight kids. They end up getting a great deal. Right, and then um, that and, and then for the addiction part, it's a it's also a membership. It's just more expensive because I have because of laws and regulations and liability and whatnot, I see those patients a lot more frequently. So at first, when somebody comes in for opioid dependence, I'm going to see that patient monthly at least. Um, And so that, that, that whole part is more expensive. And I believe all of the pricing is on my website. And I have increased my prices, I think, once. So it's gone really well. We're up to... I think, uh, between 600 and 700 patients, I brought on a family nurse practitioner part-time, uh, last year and that's going well. Cause we're like-minded. She, uh, she was working at uh, the university of Louisville and was, uh, getting pressured, you know, to get the COVID vaccine and didn't want it. She was recovered, COVID recovered. So, um, you know, we talked, we knew each other already. We were friends. So she's joined the practice and she's actually studying functional medicine because, you know, with the way, uh, the medical establishment has gone, I've kind of, um, you know, I'm just disillusioned with all of it. Mm-hmm. So w- we're dappling more with, uh, the functional medicine side. And we, we, you know, coach people on diet, fasting, exercise, lifestyle changes. Um, and, uh, It gradually built over the years and I have, we have two medical assistants. Um, I pretty much don't deal with insurance unless there's someone who needs a medicine that I, I cannot dispense here in the office and that, uh, requires a prior authorization. I will do those occasionally. Um, and then if somebody needs to see a specialist, that's fine um, they still can their insurance will cover that it has nothing to do with me pretty much what I do is I don't I just don't bill insurance for my services and the the monthly amount covers most services so if somebody comes in for uh, like a mole removal for example or a biopsy of a mole I don't charge for the surgery I just I Take the biopsy, send the biopsy to a lab. The lab bills me an amount which is way less than it would be in the system, probably ten percent. Wow! And then I bill the patient what they build me. And same with same with the labs that we draw, like the blood work that we draw. We have a we have what's called a client bill uh, arrangement with the lab where, I mean, the discounts are unbelievable. You can get a you know a panel a typical wellness panel which would include the lipids CBC CMP TSH and maybe a fasting insulin and A1C is it's going to be $30 for what? the patient. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I paid yeah, a $50 copay for my labs last year.
1: Yeah, I I mean and and that's the thing too is a, sometimes people will end up with a bill later on that they're not expecting for hundreds of dollars because they're because their insurance company decided that they weren't going to pay for that lab you know some of these thyroid labs people want people want to know what their t4 what their t3 is and i want to know i want to know you know but insurance companies don't think that we need to know that so they're not going to pay for those that's so you know we get around so much of the nonsense and the corruption by doing that this way um one one great silver lining from covid is i think people are waking up i think they're realizing this system is a joke. Like these doctors are not working for me. They're working for a hospital system. They're working for an insurance company. They're you know there's um, something from Kentucky Medicaid circulating on Twitter now. It's a, it which showed that doctors were incentivized to um, provide the COVID vaccination for people. I saw people. that.
0: I re- I retweeted it actually. That was well, that was appalling.
1: But but it's not new. I mean right. that's that's exactly what's been happening for the past um when it when did it when did the ACA come out? 2010. Oh, nine, that's been going yeah. on. That was the idea. That was the idea. They didn't want to pay us fee for service. So they had to come up with some way to incentivize us to do what they want us to do. So to check all the boxes, like we talked about guns, we talked about pronouns we talked about you know smoking and um it. and if you check all those boxes you get more money you know so and then if you if you offer a person this vaccine or that vaccine and they actually get it we'll give you a bonus I mean this is not new it's just being exposed and people are appalled by it because that vaccine doesn't work so you know it's like it's a good thing because I think more people are going to say. Whereas, I've been hearing for years, right, from people, well, why would I not use my insurance? We pay all this money for insurance. Mm-hmm. Why would I? Why would I come to you and not use my insurance? And and I, you know, it's very hard to explain. Well, because if they're just in between you and your doctor, they're they're a hindrance. They're not helping. You know, um, any- and I'm and you know as far as like what people can do they, there are other options besides the traditional health insurance you can do health care sharing ministries you know there's other other options for people if you cuz i agree insurance is very expensive and so um
0: well it's a racket there, right like like it is a, a racket it, the, the insurance companies contrary to popular belief don't care about the health of their members they they like to say that in public and on commercials but at the end of the day their job is to enroll a bunch of people to pay their premiums and then restrict care access as much as they can so they can pay out their shareholders and show a profit that you know quarter 2 beat quarter yeah. 1 and the way they do that is by denying prior authorizations or artificially restricting the network by denying access to the member to the network by providers which is something we're encountering here in Nevada even in the mental health realm It's like, Mm -hmm. you want to, you want to reduce costs, do preventative care. Okay. But we don't have preventative care in mental health. Why? Well, because they'd have to pay out something and something is more than zero. And it's just, it's just baffling to me that we can't turn the corner on this. And yet it's not baffling because their interests are not aligned. They have two fiduciary responsibilities, one to their shareholders and one to their members. And guess which one always wins. So it's, yeah, yeah, I get it.
1: Yeah, the, there's a meeting next month, the, uh, the free market medical association. And it's going to be a gathering of, of people who realize that um, really what I do is the free market. And um, Dr. Keith Smith, it's the I think he and another person, Jay Kemper started the free market medical association. And he owns the surgery center of Oklahoma. So he he was the pioneer in free market medicine. He's an anesthesiologist. Wow. He got he got fed up with the insurance companies way back in the 90s before even Obamacare and you know he saw it all for what it was. Started his surgery center and you can go to his website. I don't mind giving Keith a shout out ever cuz he's awesome. Um, you can go to his website and, and get the exact cost of whatever surgery, elective surgery it is that you need. So, um, there, there are going to be so many people at this meeting who are doing innovative things, probably mental health professionals too, I would imagine. But uh, yeah, I I was, I was
0: going to ask about that because I think uh, those of us in our, you know, mental health community, we're merely master's level and we don't see ourselves as being part of the quote-unquote medical community, I hear Free Market Medical Association, my ears immediately say, I'm probably not welcome there, but why wouldn't I be? And then the you know corollary to that is my services are, are cheap. All I need is a place. I don't need equipment. I don't need uh, drugs. Yeah. Right. So I'm trying to figure out how an anesthesiologist or a surgeon can do this without massive bankroll of capital to buy things like CT scanners and Uh, x-ray machines aren't that expensive I guess but you know how does a cardiologist who wants to do (laughs) tavers acquire such a place without the backing of a hospital like do is this what these people are working on
1: yes and and I mean they've done it the the surgery center of Oklahoma did it and and one of the ways that they've One of the ways that they've expanded it and so they've been able to to grow is they work directly with employers, Uh, you know, Uh because everybody gets their everybody gets their health insurance through their employer now. And so what 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 many um, entrepreneurs, including uh, another direct primary care doctor in Florida, his name's Dr. Lee Gross, that that are many people are contracting directly with employers. I could do that as well. I just don't want to get that big. But um, going to employers, especially employers that are self-insured, so um, if they are self-insured, then you the 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 people providing the services, the doctors, the mental health professionals, the surgeons can can offer a price directly to that employer and the The people, the employers that are going for this, the smart employers who have HR people or who are going for this, they're saving millions of dollars a year because their employees are getting care um, quicker. They are getting better care because they're getting care from direct primary care doctors, for example, who have the time to spend and help them, you know, change their lifestyle so that they're healthier and they're getting affordable care, you know, because a a surgery that is maybe a, it's really, really cost the hospital $10,000 to provide the surgery. They're billing insurance, you know, $150,000 or so. So um, it's, the healthcare system right now is, it's just a game, it's really a game. And if you play the game, you can do well financially if you have no conscience, if you have how yeah, no you sleeping
0: at night, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know, I people I when people accuse me of being greedy, you know, online, usually it happens on Twitter because I charge people directly. It just makes me laugh because I could make so much more money in the system if I was willing to play the game. It's just that I have this this annoying conscience, you know, that that woke me up sometime in 2014 and said, Hey, you know, I'm not helping anyone. This is not, this is not what I went to medical school to do, you know? So I I think like this, I've heard that the, the, the meeting in May in Kansas city, the free market medical association, I've heard that it's, it's going to be very well attended. And I just hope that it continues to grow. And I know, I know mental health uh, professionals are welcome there. I just know it. Um, So I think, you know anybody in in the business of providing care for people? You know needs to seriously step back. You know, am I really working for my patients here? And then, um, if not, come and come and listen to what some innovative people are doing.
0: This all sounds. And really- includes, Go ahead.
1: And plus, I mean, it includes people in the insurance industry too, or the broker industry. There are people. Um, not, not in the main insurance companies. You know, not the the big profit makers like like you described, like Humana and Blue Cross Blue Shield and Anthem and all those. But um, but people are learning how to um, how to have a career that's more fulfilling. That's not about like just making money. But they, if they're doing the right thing and they are successful, then they're gonna they're gonna make a living. They're gonna do well.
0: This aligns a lot with my philosophy here in the last, um, two years or three years or so I've purposely told my intern students, you know, employees, people who are fully licensed, independent, who work for us here and our Zephyrs, we got 15 or 16 clinicians, a handful of five or six front office staff. So we're, we're not small, um, but we're not a behemoth. And what I've, what I've said is like, let's get better, go deeper, with people faster, and get them off the calendar. So let's not make them feel better. But let's actually get them better. Because in Nevada, we're uh, overwhelmed with demand and not enough uh, providers to, to meet the ma- demand. So I'm not threatened by people healing and never coming back. So I know there's somebody standing right behind them, waiting to get serviced. And um, I, I would gladly work myself out of a job if it meant that I was in a community full of happy, healthy people who weren't, you know, bullying each other on the playground or arguing in the line at the grocery store i'll gladly do anything else to pay my lease on this on this building uh including turning it into a home brewery or coffee shop but um <laughs> this this sounds really great and i'm trying to figure out i don't know if there's any direct care providers here in town i'm sure there are some and i just don't know about them but it is the is this chicken or egg battle sounds to me like we have to create the provider network first before we start courting businesses to into it is that is that kind of the order of things
1: basically there are some independent direct primary care physicians who um contract directly with small businesses small-ish businesses okay um and you know that's not going to include everything that's not going to include hospitalization and and you know psychology and therapists and surgery but um i think there are, you don't necessarily have a whole network of, you, can't, you don't have to meet every need in order to step into this space. Um, it just, I guess it just depends on your community and where people are. So I know in Kentucky, there's a huge demand right now for physicians who are outside the box. You know, there's a very low level of trust right now. Uh, people got very tired of going to the doctor and the first thing people say to them is, you know, have you been exposed to monkey pox? I mean, yep, yep, <laughs> like, yep. did you
0: get your COVID vaccine? Yep. yep.
1: Yeah. Did you get your, put your mask on? Did you get your, and this just, I mean, it just ended a few weeks ago, even here, put your mask on. Did you get your COVID vaccine? Have you been exposed to COVID? Do you have any symptoms? I mean, it just went on forever. And so people are not dumb. They just, they're like, I don't, I don't trust these people to take care of me. I don't, they're, you know, they're, they're not even focused on what I'm actually at the office for. So, you know, I don't know what the environment is like in Nevada, but at least here people are hungry for alternatives and they're going to pay for it.
0: Yeah. There, there is a desire. And I I rub elbows with a lot of these people because I wear a lot of different hats in the community and it's, it's the same frustration, but while we're exchanging notes on whose pediatrician still requires the children to cover their faces even though they're going in for a, a a throat swab where they have to remove their mask it's like common sense common sense just doesn't even exist anymore and if your provider is either too scared to do things pre-2020 that's an indicator of probably a lack of you know maybe evidence, scrutiny, or if they're just simply compelled into it by regulatory force, that's also a, an, ex, you know, an, a, an incidence or a, or an example of somebody maybe you don't want to believe has your best interest in mind if they're captured. So yes, there is a demand for it. I, I don't know that people are, when I say ego, I, I mean, comfort zone, I don't mean like hubris, but I don't know that there's enough ego strength on behalf of the providers to buck the orthodoxy and say, now I'm going to step out and I'm going to take a little bit of a hit on my income level. And, you know, oh, by the way, I'm going to have autonomy and freedom and, you know, personal peace of mind. Uh, because it is a heavy lift, especially if you're talking to somebody who's, you know, 15, 20, 30 years in their career, like, ah, why, why change now? Right. So I get the hesitation on behalf of the providers. But simultaneous to that, I wonder if, if this, you know, quote unquote parallel economy that's being created is not going to be somehow threatened by, um, or threatening to the insurances, the mega, the, the megalithic ones that say, um, you know, now worm their way into legislatures and uh, create laws that disallow it from happening, right? So I, I wonder if this can actually shake up the system in such a way that it creates good opportunities for people to who don't want to do it the old-fashioned way, or if it's going to be snuffed out by more resources and power and money. I, I, I don't know. I love the idea, though, and I'd love to explore being a part of that. Cause I know that I myself paid out almost $80,000 in my employee's health insurance last year. And that was just us just paying 50%. That's like, that's right. a big, big chunk of change out of everybody's pocket that could otherwise yeah. be spared. I, I don't know how people go about getting surgeries under a, a system like that. Maybe they still have to have health insurance somewhere. I, I don't know. Right.
1: Right. Well, and and um, that's where we need to educate people too. Like people think of a high deductible plan as being a negative, but it can actually be a positive if you are if you are you know if you are staying relatively healthy, mm-hmm. um, and if you get an HSA HSA with that, for example, so that you can set money aside to meet that deductible if something bad does happen. I mean, direct primary care is so affordable. It's more affordable than a cell phone, and and you know people are they're they're just so used to that twenty dollars copay or no copay in some in some instances that it's hard for them to wrap their head around. Um, but it's, it's it's worth it? Everybody who comes and does it realize it's worth it. Um, even Medicare patients. I'm opted out of Medicare, so I don't bill bill them for any services. But I have patients who have Medicare. And even they um, save money. I I save them money on their medicines because the the pharmacy benefit managers have their, you know, they have their claws into it and, and they're corrupt. And so they are they're inflating the prices on these medicines that many of these Medicare patients are on because I dispense here. Actually, I dispense generic medicines. I'm able to save people money even there. That's amazing. So. Yeah. So, and, and in regarding the, regarding the behemoths wanting to shut us down, we, most states have a, a law now a, a protecting direct primary care. We have one in Kentucky. If you go to dpcfrontier.com, there's a mapper on there, first of all, to tell you where, um, where direct primary care physicians are located or offices are located. And then there's um, some information on the state's laws which laws are good which laws are bad um there there are a couple of states that are not very friendly to DPC at all one is new jersey um california obviously although there i mean there are people in california doing direct primary care N-
0: nevada is um, gray <laughs> nevada and california yeah. are gray on the map
1: <laughs> yeah so somebody needs to get moving on developing um uh, some legislation to protect the model um and and um you know we i can i can always forward the kentucky law that was signed was that it was when matt bevan was governor um my colleague dr tracy raglan and i were able to draft um, a bill and we got that through That's super cool yeah so um you know i and even Canada, they have a private medical. I just, I, I don't see it happening in the United States unless the United States completely goes off the deep end into communism. I don't see um, private medicine being outlawed here.
0: That's good to know. That's, that's really encouraging. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I could talk forever about this because I love getting into this sort of stuff. I don't know if the listeners are interested, but I do want to uh, pivot because before we started, you and I were talking about social media and children. And I do want to hit that at least a little bit. I know that I've been increasingly more frequently asked to present to schools, school children, their parents specifically on how to curtail or put at least guardrails on kids exposure to social media. Uh, before I get into it and start talking about Jonathan Haidt and all his great work. What do you do in your practice? And what are you seeing?
1: Well, I'm seeing I'm definitely seeing an uptick in a, in anxiety and depression among young kids. Um, you know, I have a very small practice and I have a couple of uh patients who have been hospitalized for mental health issues. So that's that's Suicidal not a good ideation. Time. Yes. Yeah. And, and self um, Yep. Yep. Um And, and then, you know, I've, I've, I've got young girls with eating disorders. Um, It's just all bad. I mean, there's like the social contagion of having a diagnosis. Uh, You know, there are these groups on Instagram or, or Snapchat or whatever they do, um, you know, where kids talk about their diagnoses and it, and it's just, there are so many things bad about social media in general, but especially for kids, I just feel like it's not, they're not able to handle it. Um, I I mean, I can't imagine being in high school and just always knowing what every single one of my peers was doing and not, and, and being able to have the, the emotional maturity to not feel envious or, you know, fear of missing out, Um, you know, I just, I just think it's, it's tragic. And, and, you know, I wish I hadn't even bought my boys cell phones, to be honest, they don't need them. They definitely don't need smartphones. Um, But I caved, you know, to the peer pressure, because everybody else had them. They do not have social media, although I'm sure they're able to access bad things online, um, that I would rather them not see. But at least they don't, I know they don't have, you know, active social media accounts. So they're not and how old
0: are they? 14 and 17. Yeah. yeah. Heights uh, work lately, and now that all this is researched and empirically based, uh, that social media for children is awful. Um, it, is, it is reasonably the cause for the teen mental illness epidemic that's spiked in the last 10 years, 11 years. And his suggestion is we keep kids off social media until after adolescence, which is, loosely 16, but really, it's more like 18 to 20. And, you know, once you turn 18, you're a fully autonomous individual under the eyes of the law. uh, So you can only control it for so long. But it's, it's worth exploring. And I'm telling people this now, I think three years ago, my my opinion would have been, you know, the balance of social media exposure, there's some good, there's some bad. Today, I can't make that argument. I can't say that there's as much good as there is negative it's it's mostly negative and the the negative impacts are so much more severe than any positive impact that it's just not worth it and it's hard to get undone and and we point no further than developmental ability to process information children are not meant to be overwhelmed both with stimuli and that's exactly what being online does it overwhelms the brain i mean you and i do this professionally and we still have to take twitter breaks because we know what we're intaking. And we also know that it, it, there's a, a point of diminishing returns on how much we can intake. Kids don't have that governing mechanism. They don't have the override switch. So it's up to the parents to say no. It's up to the parents to pay attention. The problem being that the parents are often themselves engrossed in their own devices. So how are you able to pay attention to your kids if your distraction is uh, right in the middle of your hand too? So, you know, and, and I've heard arguments like, well, you know, kids got exposed to porn through magazines back in the seventies, eighties and nineties too. It's like, yeah, but the access and availability isn't the same. Now it's at the touch of a button or, you know, the, the flick of a screen and it's endless. It's not just a magazine you swiped from your dad's collection or you faked a, down at the seven 11 to buy it from the rack. It's, it's a bottomless pit. And it's very, very bad, not to mention the comparisons that go on. And one of the things that Height points out, uh, you know, com, if you want to check out his work. But one of the things that he points out is that the teen girls are most succumbing to this because they're into the image-driven social media, the Snapchats, the Tumblers, the TikToks, the Instagrams, and Facebook for too much lesser degree because that's for old people. But um, the the boys tend to be more in the interactive stuff, video games and you know chats through the video games and stuff. And that's why the the girls are are succumbing to this more often and to a, a more severe degree. And it's it has a lot to do with the content, but really it has to do with when you set it aside, your brain is still thinking about what's being posted what you're missing out on and how you can compete in that marketplace in the middle of algebra or whatever so it it just never really does turn off and the best antidote seems to be keep them off it full stop i
1: agree agree. and it can it can ruin their lives later on you know if you post something that or somebody gets a video of you while you're out and you you know you say something that you probably shouldn't have said you know, it's like everything is on record now. That's terrifying. And so, you know, you try to get a job in 10 years and there's this video of you being an idiot one night saying something you shouldn't have said. And all of a sudden, nobody's going to hire you. It's, 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 um, it's a really strange culture. I really hope that we're, um, reaching, you know, the peak of the absurdity and, and, um, that we're going to swing back to something um, healthier for these kids because it it is concerning.
0: I hope so too. And, And unfortunately, hope is not a strategy. We have to take an active role in making it happen. And I think that looks something like telling them that the internet is written in ink, you know, telling them that their likelihood of becoming a multimillionaire YouTuber is very, very low um, you know, stuff like that, like balancing reality with fantasy, uh, whether or not they listen is a matter of whether or not you have rapport with your children. And if you don't think you do, it's high time you get involved because if you're not parenting your kids, somebody is. So, um, be, beware and uh, be mindful and then be mindful of your own intake too. So that you're not also, you know, absent or distracted or just irritable and grouchy because, your intake is negative and it's spilling over into the kitchen right?
1: Mm-hmm. know that I'm guilty. I've been guilty of that. Oh, for me too.
0: Sure. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're over an hour now and I, I want to honor and respect your time. I really appreciate you carving it out to share this stuff. It's, it's inspiring. I'm, I'm very glad we met and I'm glad we had this talk. Um, mm-hmm. One one thing I want to address before we end, though, is the podcast I heard you on was talking about how health broadly is not largely solved with pills. I know we spent a whole time covering addiction and how you, we do need some sort of medication induced therapy in order to get through the the extreme forms of addiction. But overall, your philosophy, very much like mine, is not the external intrusion of chemical substances into the body to fix our ailments. It's something much deeper uh, to address the root cause. And a lot of that centers on diet. So talk a little bit about what you shared with that America Out Loud uh, interview, please.
1: Sure. Um, So uh, several years ago, I started um, changing my diet because I was eating a lot of processed food and um, saw some major changes in, in my health as a result. So I started to do a deeper dive, uh, became involved in the low carb community and, um, started helping people change their eating habits or their nutrition to more whole foods. Um, not worrying about fat as much. Cause you know, we, we were all raised like don't eat fat. And then as a result, everybody was eating processed food with a bunch of sugar So um, uh, during COVID, I, I did get a loan from the, the government and then um, I used that money to develop an app called found, um, Foundations and Health and um, it, people can sign up healthfoundationsapp.com. They get, a, they get a coach to help them switch their eating over to low carb. Many of my patients incorporate fasting into that. And then also exercise, sleep, and stress management are part of that as well. Um, and then you know, when I see patients in the office, I talk to them about it. I've had some patients be very, very successful. There's definitely an, a, I think, an addiction component to eating as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know,
1: yeah, and so just having to identify that, like, are you that person who can occasionally have a donut, or is that going to throw you off the rails? You know, just knowing that about oneself is helpful. Um, but it's been awesome because I've been able to, my goal is to get people off of medicines. And, uh, most of my patients want that very, most people don't want to be on, you know, four or five medicines. They really don't. And so, um, you know, with direct primary care, I have the time to spend and, you know, that's been one of the more fulfilling things that I've been able to do.
0: What are some of these medicines you're getting them off of?
1: Well, I was able to get a, a few people off of insulin. One man that had been on insulin for twenty years is no longer on insulin. That's he switched remarkable. his diet over to keto, and he's doing some fasting, um, and then some antidepressants. I've been able to people like processed food affects the brain. Uh, we know that. Uh, there's a really excellent psychiatrist. I think he's at Harvard, maybe Chris Palmer. Have you heard of him? I've not. He worked. He wrote a book called brain energy. And so he's part of the low carb commit, uh, community. And, um, you know, he, he goes through what, you know, the effect that sugar has on the brain, the effect that other processed chemicals have on the brain, the, the processed seed oils are terrible for our mental health. It's Which all infl- everything, by the way, it's all inflammation, really. It's all inflammation, um, causing many of these things, not saying that, everyone can get off of their antidepressants. That's, that's not a good idea, but, um, I have helped many people taper off of those. And then, um, statin drugs, I get patients all the time that are on statin drugs who don't even need them. They're not, they don't have any, you know, they're like 40 and they have a high LDL. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to give somebody a statin for that. Um, So, so those are some examples, but I've even had people like their allergies and their asthma improve when they've gone to a more Mm -hmm. whole food based, you know, lower sugar, lower carb diet. And that's
0: lowercase whole foods, not uppercase TM whole foods.
1: Oh yes, Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What are, what are some, uh, things that we can look out for that are very common i'm thinking you know potato chips and crackers anything you buy off the shelf in a box probably should be taken if at all with a uh, very minimal uh ingestion but what, what are some some common things
1: um yeah like you said anything processed even these processed foods that say keto on them if you look at the ingredients and there's you know several ingredients that's highly processed and and it's probably not good for you. Um, so I would say, you know, stay, stay around the edges of the grocery store, better yet, go to the farmer's market. We have chickens, so we have fresh eggs at my house. Um, I just joined a farm share, so I'm going to have, um, milk and, um, kefir from this person's farm. Um, our neighbor has beef, so we have half a freezer. So whenever you can, uh, even avoid the grocery store at this point is better. But if you, if you have to go to the grocery store, just stay on the edges, full fat dairy, don't ever get low fat dairy. It's disgusting. It's not good for you. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, you know, some of the fruit, some people can overdo it with fruit fruit is very high in sugar. So, you know, just because it's a fruit does not necessarily mean that it's, it's beneficial for your health.
0: It's so interesting. You say the edges of the grocery store because as soon as you, you said that, I was thinking, wow! Every single grocery store on on the rim, right on the on the edges, is the meat department, the deli, the bakery, the produce. Uh, it's in the center where all the packages are. That's so interesting. I never thought about that.
1: Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Very cool. Absolutely. And th- those foods like Doritos, those are those are actually engineered to be addictive. You know, that's mm-hmm. why you can't eat. Like if you have a bag can't of Doritos, I, I've never met anybody who can stop eating Doritos. I can't. They're engineered for you to, you know, have to keep eating them. They're addictive.
0: Yeah, there's a. I, I would love to do a whole dive on um, the addictive properties of flavor uh, in foods, and because I know that's a thing. You know, we we criticize dopamine hits from the internet, but we do get a dopamine hit from Doritos, and because it, it tastes good, and our brain wants more, and uh, it's satisfying. It's yeah, that's a, that's a conversation for a different day, but, um, thank you. I really appreciate it. So, uh, once again, uh, if you could list off some of the ways people can reach you and or achieve help from the app, from your website. And I don't know if you, if you're allowed to treat people, if they telecommute in from out of state, is that a thing or do they have to be physically in person? I can,
1: I can treat people who like, who in states where I'm licensed, and I'm actually licensed in several states right now. As of now, I'm only um, signing people up for my practice who live in Indiana or Kentucky, but I am licensed in West Virginia, Virginia, Texas, and Florida as well. Okay. Um, but uh, as far as the app, anyone can sign up for that because that doesn't include Care by Me. That's really just um, health coaching. So you get they get a health coaching health coach from the company that I partnered with to develop the app. Um, and, and they, I've heard excellent feedback so far. So that's, that's health foundations If for people who are listening, who don't live in Kentucky or Indiana, people who are living in, um, in this area, which is, we call the Kentuckiana area near Louisville, Kentucky. Um, you can, you can sign up online at bluegrassfamilywellness.com, or you can call the office to get some more information to decide if it's going to be a good fit for you. Um, and then. I, you know, other patients, like I have a patient that comes from Ohio, um, I'm, I'm able to treat her. I'm not breaking any laws by treating her, but, um, in general, you know, it's best if, if people are able to get to the office, if I need them to get to the office, I have nothing against telemedicine, but I would prefer to know the patient for whom I'm providing, you know, um, telehealth. Yeah, I agree.
0: I agree. Um, That was one of the silver linings of COVID too, is it compelled my field to get competent at this medium uh, because forever we just tiptoed and danced around it and saw it as suspicious or something. Um, And now we have to get good at it. Unfortunately, I think the pendulum has also swung to where people only do telehealth because it's easy and you can stay at home.
1: Yeah, well, and it reduces costs, right? Because you don't have to rent rent an office and yeah, I get it.
0: So, um, and what's that conference coming up in Kansas or Kansas City? Is it Missouri or Kansas.
1: It's in, um, Kansas city, Missouri. It's Mm -hmm. Kansas city, Missouri. Um, it's called the free market medical association. It's May 2nd through May 5th, I think, or May 3rd through May 5th. And I'll be speaking on May 4th, um, basically about my practice and, uh, yeah, it's going to be great. I went to the meeting a couple years ago in Dallas and it was fantastic. So
0: that's awesome. So if you're a provider, check that out. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Rutherford, I really appreciate your time, and I know we all uh, listening appreciate it. I always learn something cool and new by doing these things. That's why podcasting is amazing. Everybody should do podcasts, um, and okay. if you can't, at least listen. So on behalf of our Naga Notes family and our Zephyr Wellness family, thank you for listening. Share around, and um, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye.